a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> This episode, Jane, we're talking to Philippa McGuinness, publisher, in fact, our publisher, yes. and someone who's worked in that sector for 25 years and more and published a number of books of yours and a number of books of mine and one book we wrote together, which was lovely. But Philippa's different from most publishers because she is also an author and oddly that's quite an unusual combination. Last year, Philippa published The Year When Everything Changed. 2001, which is both a look at that year, which was incredibly pivotal in terms of world history. I mean, it's obviously the year of 9-11, which probably did change everything. And in Australia, Tampa, you know, there was an enormous amount going on politically and in world news, but it's also an intensely personal book about the loss of her son, Daniel, who was stillborn. So she brilliantly combines this big picture political, observational take with intensely personal and, if you like, kind of human story, which could happen in any year, but happened to her in 2001. So it's a delight to have Philippa here with us so that we can talk to her both about the book she's published and the book she's written. Philippa, the last time I saw you, it was a Sunday morning. It was an absolutely beautiful day. We were sitting having breakfast, Ridges Hotel on the foreshores of the Newcastle Harbour. We're both authors at the Newcastle Writers' Festival. But you're actually more usually a publisher. How is it being a, well, let's put it crudely, a poacher turned gamekeeper? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I play for both teams now. It was great. I just loved it. It's a completely different experience being an author at events like that because as a publisher, you're always looking out, you know, wrangling. When someone's speaking, you're thinking, oh, that's okay. Oh, that's a tough question. You're monitoring the whole time. As an author, I've just felt like I was the star of my own show and I just loved it and being schmoozed and looked after in the hotel and going to the author's party, which I probably would have been to anyway as a publisher, and I have in the past, but it gives me a real buzz. But I now realise, having turned publisher to author, although I am still a publisher, I still have my day job and I love it, but I realise why authors like writers' festivals so much, and it's because you're talking to someone who has read your book. That has been one of many, many, many revelations through the whole thing. But I did a lot of radio interviews, which I enjoyed, but quite often somebody would be telling me what I say in my book and I think, actually, I don't say that at all. But you have to be very polite and say, oh, that's a great question. Thanks so much for asking that insightful question when actually it's not very insightful at all. But at writers' festivals, people are taking your work seriously and that's a real gift. Philippa, can I ask you about uh, the world of publishing and its allure? Was that something that you'd thought about as a career from an early age or not? 
I had always, you won't be surprised to hear, I'd always loved reading. I was a really serious reader and English was my best subject at school and all that, but I wanted to be a journalist. And so I applied to do a graduate cadetship at The Age. And I don't know why I picked The Age. I'm from Sydney, but at that time, The Age was a really great newspaper and it still is in in many ways. But, you know, it's suffered what, you know, media everywhere has has gone through. And I got to the last two and I missed out. And I thought, oh, this is a disaster. And then I fell into a job as a publishing assistant for a university press. And it's a kind of sliding doors thing, actually, because I don't think I would have been a great journalist. I think I would have been okay, but I'm not dispassionate enough very often, I think, to be a really good journalist. And publishing suited me really well. Uh, And you knew that pretty quickly? Yeah, I did. I did. And yet the book you've written, there is a lot of journalism in that book. Mm, You are mm. writing about a year, a year that was important to you incredibly personally, but also a year which was pivotal for the world. Yeah, that's right. I think I'm interested in reportage, you know, describing what happened. But I inject a lot of personality and emotion. You know, I'm unable to say, you know, the planes flew into the building. I, I, you know, describe the, the trauma of that. And I'm interested in the human stories and how I reacted to it personally which in good journalism shouldn't always be part of the story. But I think quite often in good writing, it's important to have some kind of really immediate human connection. And that's what I wanted to do. Do you think being a publisher for as long as you have been, how long have you actually been in publishing? So long. (laughs) More than 25 years. Right. Do you think that that gave you an insight into just exactly what you just described. What Because most writers, I mean, you know, Catherine and I have both written books, some for you indeed, mm. as a publisher, and we've all had to be first-time authors who go out there with an idea and, a, you know, and no idea whether this is what a publisher wants or a market wants. But you would have had a very good idea. Yeah, I did. And I think often along the way I surprised myself Um I guess with how much knowledge about structure and tone and voice I had absorbed and tried to impart over the years. And when it came to me sitting at my desk, it was like a feeling of joy, to be honest. Even when I was writing about really tough things, to think I can do this myself, I can, you know, hit all the targets I want to hit. I can experiment and see what works and see what doesn't work without having to say to someone, I think you should do this or why don't you try this or this structure might be a bit better or you can lose the second half of that chapter. It doesn't really add anything. I was having that conversation with myself all the way through and trying to be tough with myself but also trying to be really creative and open and curious all the way along. 
and I loved it. I could not have loved it more. Philippa, can I ask you, as someone who was in journalism for a long time and did quite a bit of editing, one's heart would occasionally sink when a large piece of writing would land and you'd think, I have to go through this with a fine tooth comb, Mm. come back with some cogent commentary, make sure that it's right for publication and so on. But my maximum would be about 2,000 words. I just wanted to ask you about the day-to-day sort of mechanics of being a publisher, getting vast amounts of words that Mm. you have to plough through and come back with, you know, pertinent and helpful and constructive um, commentary Mm. on, which you've done with me and done very well. Tell us about that and how psychologically you cope with that. It's exhausting. It really can be all-consuming. And what I find overwhelming sometimes is that after you finish dealing with this 50 or 60,000 words, there's another, you know, book of as many words just sitting there waiting and you know that that author is freaking out thinking, has she read it? Has she read it yet? Has she read it yet? She must really hate it. That's why she hasn't got back to me. And quite often, you know, I'll fire someone a note saying, don't panic. I haven't started. I'm getting to it. I can't wait to get to it, but I'm in the thick of something else. And that is the story of my life. But also if I'm publishing a book, I want to read it. Mm. I want to read all of it. And it's really time consuming. So, and I'm publishing about around 25 books a year. Mm. So that's a lot. And they're the ones that get up. There are all the books that, you know, I get well into And I think, actually, I don't think this is for us. I don't think it can be saved or I don't think we're the right publisher for it. So, yeah, it really can be all-consuming. Where do you think we're we're sitting now with um, this very broad-brush question, Mm. but book publishing, I mean, not that many years ago, it was being written off. You know, we wouldn't need books anymore. Um, That's not proved to be the case. Nonetheless, like all forms of publishing, it's under enormous pressure. What are things like at the moment? I'm an optimist, so I think that we're in a better place than we could possibly have imagined we would be in even 10 years ago. And I think in that way, the world of book publishing has been quite different from newspapers, for example, which have really been crushed by big tech. I've actually just written a long piece about this where I reflect on the impact that big tech has had on publishing and on my world. And I think, you know, even 10 years ago, a lot of us thought everyone's going to be reading books on Kindle, bookstores won't exist anymore, no one will read. No one will go to writers' festivals. Yes, exactly. And, we, you know, we were just saying the Sydney Writers' Festival, not surprisingly, has been a big hit, big crowds, good book sales, I would imagine. So we have lived to die another day. But to be honest, I think one of the biggest challenges for book publishers is getting people's attention. So we're fighting the war against distraction because it's really easy to get sucked into your phone and just think, I have just maybe wasted, maybe not, 20 minutes looking at my social media feeds and I've learnt something, maybe, but I could have read two chapters of a book. And I, I mentioned in the essay I've written for Griffith Review that a lot of people seem to almost confess to me, that's a, the best word for it, that they don't read anymore. They go, I just don't have time. 
I get so caught up in Netflix or whatever and occasionally, I'm not judgmental about this. I don't care how people consume story, really, whether it's, you know, podcasts or audiobooks or, you know, series on Netflix. But sometimes I did at a dinner party, I heard myself, you know, I'd had a few glasses of wine and I said to someone, you could just watch one episode of Killing Eve or whatever and say, now I'm going to go to bed and read my book. You can do both. It's not either or. And I think a lot of it gets back to choice, you know, about how we're going to spend our time. And I think if everybody thinks, well, I'm just going to spend all my time on social media and binge watching shows that are coming down to us through the golden age of television, book publishing might actually be in trouble because then you're not going to go, well, yeah, I will read a 500-page novel. But I think it's really important that we do. Yes, I agree with you completely. You said something interesting about you don't really, you're not judgmental about how people consume story. And to take you back to the story you've told in your book, I mean, whilst it was both about the world, it was also about something that happened to you in 2001 that was tragic. Mm. Tell us about that, if you don't mind. But I also want to go into what do you think the purpose of telling those very difficult stories actually is in terms of consuming story for people who read and for you who want to tell it? Mm. No, it's a really, it is genuinely a good question, Jane. I write about our son, Daniel, who was stillborn. So um, at 39 weeks of pregnancy, which is full term, um, we were living in Singapore. Everything had been completely normal. And this is your first child? Second. Second. Sorry. So we already had um, our daughter who um, will turn 20 in the middle of this year and Daniel's heart just stopped beating. He was stillborn. So we buried him on New Year's Eve, the last day of 2001, which as a writer, to get back to your earlier point, I could see that that was an extraordinary piece of narrative, really. If you'd put that in a novel, it would have seemed too contrived. But in real life, that is actually what happened. Um, And at the time, I truly thought that stillbirth was something that would not happen to anybody I would ever meet in my life. I had truly no idea how common it is, alarmingly so. But this was the first time I'd ever written about it or talked about it very much. You know, for me, the idea that I could be sitting here with Jane and Catherine talking about this, I find extraordinary, even even now. And so that is something that writing the book did for me personally. It gave me space to write about this and talk about it without falling apart every time. And a lot of people have said to me, it must have been really cathartic to write about it. And I'm not quite sure what they mean when they ask that question because I think often people want to know you moved on, you got over it, you know, you wrote about it and then something was freed and... It didn't matter anymore. And of course, that's not the case. 
it matters as much now as it did then. But what writing did was shifted something in me so that I could talk about it. And there's one thing a book does, which I which I knew, but it never really happened to me personally. It gives you a kind of a platform. And so when The Guardian extracted the chapter in the book that's about Daniel, I felt terribly exposed. At first I thought, I've made a really bad mistake. I can't cope with this kind of public airing of my very private story. And my husband actually said, there are so many comments. You should see the comments. And I went, oh, my God, don't talk to me about the comments. He said, no, they're really positive. They're amazing. Everybody's, you know, sharing your pain, sharing their own stories. And I thought, wow, this is, if I had read something like this in those dark days of 2001 and early 2002, I would have felt a bit less alone. And I thought, well, maybe this has been worthwhile writing about this. And then in one of these great coincidences of life, just before my book was published last year, there was a Senate inquiry into stillbirth, which was really prompted by Christina Keneally, who lost her daughter, Caroline. And there's been money put into stillbirth research and bereavement services for the first time. It's part of the Labor Party's platform in this election. And I just could not have imagined that in a very, very short space of time, we've we've moved, like Australia in general and me personally, have moved from a point where the word stillbirth was hardly uttered. I, I hardly ever used the word to talking about it more openly. So I feel really privileged, actually, to have been a part of that conversation. It's like many different areas to do with women's lives and experiences are now finally, after what, millennia really, of being invisible, using inverted commas, we're now starting to recognise and understand. They were almost unmentionable. Yeah. And now we are not just mentioning them, we are actually demanding that notice be taken. Do you think that that in a way is the purpose of story, to shine lights, to connect, to lighten burdens, to what do you think the purpose of story is? It's the business of your life. Yeah. I think it's to connect. It's to shine a light. That's a phrase I use quite often to remind us of how the world is, how the world works, experiences that have been ignored or misunderstood. And story can work on so many different levels. It doesn't always have to be personal. You know, you can be doing, if you're an academic, you can be doing really deep research into telling the stories of soldiers on the Western Front or women fighting for the vote in Australia or whatever it may be, but it's about forcing people. And sometimes, I don't use that word lightly because sometimes it's hard. People don't want to have their eyes open to things that are difficult. 
but we need to. You work with UNSW Press. It's a non-fiction publisher. I'd love to hear, what are you reading at the moment? And do you read a lot of fiction? I do. I read really widely um, in general. I try to read at least a book a week outside work. Wow. And given you've got to read 25 books a year just for work, Busman's Holiday. Mm. But I actually love reading things on printed pages. Me too. It's done, you know. Somebody else has had to deal with it. Oh, I see what you mean. It's like the, you're not you're not working with it. You're not yeah. wrangling it. Yeah, it's done. It's out there. Do you have a tendency to pick up mistakes, though? Yes, I do. <laughs> and I also have a tendency, not always, but sometimes, to read something and think, "Oh, they should have done this in a different format," or "This chapter is redundant." You know, that could have been lost. But you know, in reviews, quite often when a critic will say, oh, if only more attention had been paid to editing, I always roll my eyes because quite often they will, of course, why should they have no idea of the work that has been done? You know, I think it really could have been a whole lot worse. And often I will write to critics and say, you said there were a number of errors. What are they? So we can fix them in the next edition of the book. And things often go very quiet, I have to say, at at that point. I have just finished a book by Max Porter called Lanny. Oh, Um, everyone's talking about this book. It's really amazing. I I finished reading it last night and burst into tears. I mean, I cry pretty easily, to be honest, but um, it, it took my breath away. It's amazing. And I was supposed to go and see him um, in conversation at the Sydney Writers' Festival, but decided I would spend the time just reading the damn book. (laughs) So I did that. And last week I read a book which has just won the Pulitzer Prize and I feel like I'm on a mission in a kind of evangelical way to get everyone I know to read it. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers And it is the most extraordinary novel about trees. And I got a bit weepy at the end of that as well. Goodness. Um, And so, and and it's interesting because Lanny kind of takes place in a forest as well. So my next book will be Sophie Cunningham's um, series of essays about trees. You're Um, on a roll. Yeah. I am. I am. I do quite like reading thematically sometimes and it's not planned. It it will be quite random, but... um, I love Sophie's work, so I'm really, really looking forward to it. You are very fortunate. When you speak about your work, which you get paid to do, it is perfectly clear that it is also your passion, that it is something that you thoroughly understand but also love. And we've talked to lots of women um, who have, you know, really interesting work and interesting careers, but I don't pick up quite that same immersion. What is it like to work in something and with something day in, day out that is actually, you do it for nothing? And I know that's a cliche, but it just comes across by the way you speak about it. Well, here's the thing. I don't know any different. Because of that sliding doors moment, it's what I've always done. Um, and I, 
I can't imagine really doing anything else. You know, I've had moments where I've thought I should break out and do something more corporate or in a different field, but... We're both shaking our heads. No. <laughs> when push comes to shove, I just can't see what I'd be proving um, or, or why I would do it, except for money. That's a really interesting thing, though, because publishing remains very female-dominated, and like all female-dominated industries, what it often... Those are the passion industries. You know, people who work in nursing love it. People who work in teaching love it. People who work with children love it. People who work with words and authors love it. But there's no bloody money in it. I know. It's it's tough because some books are extremely profitable, but not all. And in the world I'm in, which is not entirely but mainly serious nonfiction publishing, you could argue that's even tougher. It is and it isn't. It all depends how you how you measure it. But one thing that I think is really interesting in nonfiction is gender. And I'm talking here about readers mm. and what sells rather than the makeup of the publishing houses themselves, which is, as you say, mainly women. Mm although there are a lot of male CEOs, yes. I would say, I mean, not not at New South, but overall probably disproportionate, I think. Same Which is the health. I haven't, I same haven't in counted. Same and in the education. same in quite mm. a lot of female-dominated yeah. areas, the yeah. top echelons are still male. Yeah. yeah, so that's interesting. But what I find really interesting is that when you look at non-fiction bestsellers, and particularly if you drill down a bit and look at history, for example, it's completely dominated by male writers. So in Australia, very often it will be, you know, Peter Fitzsimons and other military history writers and Claire Wright. Yeah, and Claire Wright. <laughs> yeah, and I think how can this even be? Because I'm publishing a lot of non-fiction by women. I know there are many, many other houses doing it as well. But when it comes to hard-nosed history, you know, we've got military history and Claire Wright. And it breaks my heart. Not, I mean, I'm Claire's biggest fan. Oh, I think too. she's amazing. Please have mm. her in all the, the bestsellers, the best-selling books lists and at the front of tables in airports and so on. But you'll know she, through social media, would talk about the dick table mm. in airports where she'd walk in and it would all the nonfiction would be by men. Yeah. And it's not all the nonfiction being published by any means, mm. but it's what people are buying and, you know, there's a bit of a chicken and egg. It's because what booksellers and publishers are promoting. But I found it fascinating last year around Father's Day I wondered if my publisher, Penguin Random House, would put my book forward as part of promotions for Father's Day. And bless them, they did. So there was my book, you know, which does cover 9-11 and Al-Qaeda and Tampa. Tampa and, you know, a lot of hard-nosed political issues. There was my book alongside a whole lot of military history and, you know, sports bios and all the rest of it. 
I don't think my book sold a single copy mm. over, you know, that Father's Day period because women are the ones who mainly buy books, but we tend to buy books by men for our husbands and fathers and sons and brothers-in-law. And by and large, we don't buy fiction for them unless it's crime or thrillers or something like that. And I think it's so limiting. Why are we doing this to ourselves? But do you think that's changing a little bit? And I'm I'm probably looking, I'm just thinking, because I saw Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb recently, and I know that Any Ordinary Day by Lee Sales has been selling well. Uh, Mm. The Wife Drought certainly has sold Mm. tens of thousands of copies. Mm. It's been out for a number of years. I wonder if it's gone to many men. Mm. Well, no, I understand that, but I'm also thinking just in terms of women buying them mm. in that nonfiction area. Definitely. Yeah. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm no. not I'm I'm not being so determinist that I'm saying that, you know, women don't buy or read nonfiction. Of course they do. But at these key times of year, Mother's Day and Father's Day, you will see a certain kind of book being promoted. Mm. Which which was why there was a little ad in The Good Weekend that included a big pile of books, you know, and there were teacups and roses and all the rest of it. But one of our books, which is a book of popular philosophy about women thinkers, was at the top of the pile. And I did think, oh, maybe this is changing. Maybe it is. I hope so. hope so. Long overdue. Uh, it, It is interesting, though, because I was on a panel Interestingly enough, at Clunes mm. Writers Festival yesterday, we spoke about exactly this topic and the fact Andrea Goldsmith, the novelist, said she knows many men who boast that they never read fiction and that fiction tends to be the female genre and non-fiction the male genre and that that still remains quite fixed um, even though even in fiction it does tend to be male writers that often dominate the prizes and all that kind of thing. Um, so women are still up against it in terms of getting published and getting read even by other women. But one thing I'm really interested to ask, and it's quite personal because you published a book by Catherine and I many years ago called The F Word, How We Learn to Swear by Feminism. And in the meantime, Catherine has since written a couple more books, another one with you, Stop Fixing Women, which has been successful, and I've written um, this year, Accidental Feminists. Now, back then, it was really hard to sell a book with feminists in the title, so you took a hell of a risk on us. Thank you. Has that changed? Yeah, there's, there's no question. And I think that publishing is responding and in some cases informing the realisation among younger women in particular that the world is not what they thought it was as a kind of chill comes over when they see the misogyny that was directed at Julia Gillard and at Hillary Clinton, but also the hashtag MeToo movement, um, which I think has had a huge impact and will continue to do so because it's given women a language to describe what has happened over so many years. But I also think that our increased awareness of the extent of domestic violence is a huge part of that, where there's a lot of anger, where women are thinking, well, that's happened to me or it's happened to my mother or it's happened to my sister or it's happened to my friend. And the idea that 
a woman can be murdered every week in her home and we're not absolutely rioting on the streets kind of shocks me. Mm. You know, I think what, how have we got to a point where that almost seems normalised and how we got to that point is history. It's patriarchy. And what all these books can do is start to unpick and explain that. Interestingly, Philippa, you didn't publish your own book. The book was published by Penguin Random House. What was that like? You who is pitched to all the time, having to go out there and pitch to other publishers. Well, I did have the advantage of knowing what made a really good pitch, but it happened during a meeting with a literary agent who was pitching stuff to me and all of a sudden I thought, okay, seize the moment and I said, Tara, could I pitch something to you, my own book? And she jokes about this now, but the first thing she said was, it's not a novel, is it? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, it's not a novel. And she said, okay. So I told her about what I wanted to do And she said, that sounds great. Send me a proposal. Um, So I did. And it all worked out pretty well. I ended up with my ideal publisher. But it was nerve-wracking. It was kind of terrifying and it made me feel really vulnerable, as did the whole process at many points all the way through. So I think it probably has made me a better publisher. And just finally, another book in the pipeline? Yes, I have an idea in my head. It's percolating. It will take a while for me to write it because I'm juggling full-time work as well. But yeah, it will emerge eventually and it's non-fiction. And people keep saying, will you write about another year? No. No. <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, I think my range is a bit broader than that. Thanks very much. But yeah, I I would love to, you know, think I was going back to my desk right now to write that book. But no, I'm going into the office. Yeah. <laughs> well, we wrangle your, someone else's that's book. That's right. <laughs> we definitely look forward to reading it when it finally does appear. It's been delightful to talk to you and it's also been delightful over many years to work with you. Yeah. Oh, likewise. Yeah. Jane, Catherine, totally. Let's do, do it, it again. again. <laughs> <laughs> You're on. <laughs> Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 